Uh, uh, we're starting. We're still, well, oh, we're we're recording. Thanks. Good morning. We are at the Freiburg New Church Assembly. This is August 11th, 2017. We're in our second week. This is the first lecture on Friday morning. I'm Gard Perry, and my title is Soul Body Interaction Part 2. So I'd like to start you off with a couple of main humor anecdotes, which have absolutely nothing to do with the topic. <laughs> However, as you will see, you can't have nothing to do with the topic of uh, soul-body interaction. Okay, I hope to demonstrate that later, but here's the story. Uh, some of you have heard the tourist stops in front of the farm, and there's the farmer standing by the side of the road, and the tourist asks, does it matter which road I take to get to Portland? Farmer steps back and says, not to me it don't. <laughs> okay, that was supposed to be funny. Was it, why wasn't that funny? It is funny. Here's another one. <clears throat> Same farmer stops beside the side of the road. There's a tourist. Ask him, how do you get to Portland from here? Farmer thinks for a second and says, my brother-in-law takes me. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> oh, this is a tough crowd, I tell you. <laughs> We're going to get to the relevance of that. Now, uh, the astute listener who was here for the first talk, or those of you who weren't and wish to catch up on it online now, as you can, uh, We'll recall in the first talk on soul-body interaction that this was a short work written by Emanuel Swedenborg at the very end of his life. The significance of it, in my view, is that it's 42 pages and 20 paragraphs. This is amazing for Emanuel Swedenborg. And it was written at the very end of his life. It must have been important. He wanted to put a very important message into a very short work uh, as one of his last acts on the face of the earth. He died three years later. And what he did in that very short work, as, uh, by which you will recall, is that he presents the overview of the spiritual world and the natural world and how they interact in soul-body interaction. And he defines the spiritual world very simply as where spirits and angels live and the natural world is where human beings live. That's the basic definition. If you want to know what spiritual means, it could mean that. Turns out it means a lot of different things as well, very relevant for our lives here. But spiritual world is where spiritual angels live, the natural world is where people live. And he talked that the sun of the natural world is where all life comes from and where we receive our warmth, where plants 
receive warmth to germinate, where life would be impossible without the physical sun on the physical earth. All motion, all energy originates in the sun. And he says by parallel, and this is his scientific mind coming through, the physical universe, the physical world that we see is a mirror image of the spiritual world which we cannot see. It is precisely, exactly organized just the same way. There is a sun of the spiritual world and the center of the sun is what he calls God Jehovah, God, God's self. The heat of the sun is divine love, the light of the sun is divine wisdom. It illuminates the heavens and provides the warmth of love and the light of intelligence and wisdom to all who live there. And then there's this interface, an intersection between the spiritual world and the natural world. Hence, there's a correspondence, which means they're completely distinct from one another but one infills the other. The spiritual infills the natural. So we are infilled. Heaven is within. And all of our love and all of our intel intelligence comes from that world through this interface, which uh, he would call the soul. Soul-body interaction. So the human soul is that inmost core of being which receives the warmth, the heat, the love, the wisdom from the spiritual world. And it received uh, deep, 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 deeply in our unconscious. We're not directly unconscious with that very subtle substance. Again, his scientific nature. He looked originally for the soul within the physical substance of the body. He got all the way to the end, as far as the mind could go, very accurately. And guess what? He did not find it. It took his spiritual eyes being opened and realized that the soul for which he was looking is, it has, it participates in both the material substance of the body and the immaterial substance of the spiritual world. And once he, uh, his eyes were opened and he was uh, allowed into with his full faculties in play, his mental faculties, he found uh, the reality of spirit was unmanifest. You would never find it. So the soul is the uh, form, the human form, which receives spiritual life into which we then can bring into our natural life. And I'll conclude this portion of it by uh, saying that he spends his uh, 20 paragraphs outlining in this short work this view of the universal human race, spiritual and natural, and brings it into focus for us within the, literally, the human mind, your mind and my mind. The one that's operating right now, as I mentioned in the first talk, intelligence, the possibility of understanding anything does not come from the neural networks in our brain, about which we know a lot now. No, those are the receptors. 
of it. Very necessary, just as an FM radio is necessary if you want to pick up the FM signal. It picks up the signal in exactly the same way. Very fine receptors, synaptic uh, 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 interface. And, crea uh, and that's inflow. He talks about influx in soul-body interaction as well. That's just constantly flowing in. We would not be aware or alive in a mental way um, or awake unless that inflow met with that which is coming from the outside, particularly the five senses. And for now, you're hearing these words through the hearing system, which goes into the auditory nerve, which is con converted by the neural networks into an auditory um, sound and then often into visual images or a thought process. And you're following it along. We're walking together. And it's the intersection of hearing the words with the inflow that allows you to, prov to create meaning. And that's what he brings us to in this uh, short work. And then he, he talks about the, why he wrote it. In one, three simple paragraphs from which I quoted in the first talk and which I'll revisit, he talks about, well, what does it take to be a moral person? That's why he's writing this. This is about teaching, how to live well. And uh, in that, he does a little bit of his spiritual psychology where he writes that <clears throat> the intellect must be able to be elevated into the very light of heaven to learn wisdom and truth as to how to live well. And then gradually, in a learning process, the will and the love is elevated to match the intellect. And that's the essential mechanism of the process of regeneration. It's not the only way that will and intellect um, operate, <clears throat> but it is the uh, ba basic learning process. The mind goes ahead of the will and the body often, begins to learn the aim, the purpose, the outcome, forms mental images of it, and then begins to make a plan. Now this is one definition of the word rational, by the way, the way Swedenborg uses it. I hope to demonstrate that it is only a very uh, partial understanding of the word rational. We have a thought process. We do in developmental psychology, we of course know this, that it takes a while for the mind to develop after the teenage years to form a sense of consequence, a sense of sequence, a sense of uh, if I do this, I'll get this certain outcome. And then gradually we begin the second level of development, which is what this is about, the doctrines, all the doctrines, really, and certainly this particular paragraph from which I'll read in just a moment, is about how to begin to develop a sense of one's own place within the context of, of society the family, the school, the larger society, where we begin to realize other people also have needs which need to be taken into account. That is the basic definition of the use of the word 
It's a Latin word, ratio, homo rationalis. And what the English translators did was simply take rationalis, find the nearest English equivalent, which is called transliteration, and say, let's call it rational. And then if you're like other people, and I include myself as other people, well, it must be what we mean by rational. Well, yes, but let's be a little more precise. To, to take what into account? To take the consequences of one's action into account on a purely individual level. If I want to go into town and be back by three, I look at my clock, I estimate the amount of time, and I say, yes, I can do this and be back by three. That's logical thinking. That's reason. Yes, we want teenagers to learn this. <laughs> yes, we need to have this capacity. And no, that is not the primary definition of the word in terms of conduct. What are we taking into account when we use the word, uh, well, it's ratio, but to take into account the life of the other person, the needs of the other person. What are they saying? Who are they? What is their meaning? What is, the, what is happening in this interaction, in this conversation? I want to listen to this person to take into account the conditions in which they are living. And to occupy that position, listening as if you were that person, that's called perspective reversal. It uh, is what Swedenborg means by this word at the advanced level. I offer it as an alternative to uh, other ways of understanding it. Uh, shift now um, just to uh, follow um, <clears throat> follow this particular portion, I'm going to uh, shift to how that is used today, um, this idea of perspective reversal. But first, we had this sentence, um, and this is why um, I've been encouraged to use this um, a verbal substitution mechanism. It's a substitution. They use transliteration, by the way. That's, that's what they did. They read this. The New Century Edition, by the way, makes a lot of improvement. It does not go into this kind of analysis. So uh, here's an example from the uh, uh, new century, excuse me, the standard edition of one of those sentences which Swedenborg brings our attention to in this small work. And this is the center of the work. And without getting into how he got here or what, where he went afterwards, he writes, spiritual things clothed in a human being enable us to live as a rational and moral person, thus a spiritually natural person. I'll read it one more time. I will not belabor the point, but if you know the meaning of this, don't raise your hand, please, because we'll do that a little bit later. <laughs> because there are so many possible meanings here. If you, whatever you say is true, absolutely. I know, that's, it's, I know it means that. And if there's... 40 people in here, it could be 40 different definitions and they'd all be right. Spiritual things clothed in a human being enable us to live as a rational, moral person, thus a spiritually natural person. Well, I'm going to go off on a limb. I spent a little time thinking about it. 
This is what it means to one of those 40 people. Intelligence and compassion clothed in the mind of a human being allow us to express empathy to the person with whom we are speaking with a skillful response, just the right words, just the right act. Okay. I'm not going to read that again, but if I were to ask 40 people what that means, I believe we would come within a much closer idea of a shared understanding of words like that. And then we could play with it. <clears throat> so there's the, what we did last uh, time. Um, to be careful moving my papers around here. At the very end of the talk, we, um, it was observed that that definition, it was observed by a school psychologist, by the way, who's quite trained in this area. We have other uh, trained listeners, and that's what I'm going to call them. I am one of them. I'm a certified pastoral counselor. I had to work a long time in a hospital as a counselor to learn the skill of trained listening, deep listening. <clears throat> it's what Emily Wolfenden calls uh, in her work, listening to understand, not to, and I'll maybe come back to this, not to compare, not to say, well, I see it differently, or I actually disagree with that. Fine, we could do all that. That's fine. Let's just not always do that. Let's say, how about trying to understand what is that person actually saying? And if you're a therapist, a counselor, and I'm going to say, guess what? Let's open this door. Do not try this. <laughs> if, you, uh, if someone says, are you a licensed counselor? No, you're not. Uh, say, no, I'm not. Can I spend a few minutes talking with you anyway? How many people have found themselves in that situation? You could raise your hand. You just say, shake your head. I, I found, some of us have found that self, our, our position all, twice, two, two or three times since breakfast. <laughs> if you walk around camp, by the way, open your eyes, you go, wow, there's two people talking over there, there's three, there's two, there's one <laughs> contemplating the beauty of nature. That's how we are. Interpersonal act, uh, uh, relations is the definition of the natural, by the way. That is the natural world. And no, we don't leave becoming natural so that we can learn, so we can become spiritual. I used to be a natural person, now I'm a spiritual person, or that's that to which I aspire. Actually, I would like to offer the alternative. The natural world is the social human realm. We're always living in it. It's the social realm. It's the human realm. It's that which we see when we open our minds, two people talking, the person to whom you're talking. You're in the natural world. Spiritual fills it and enlivens it, illuminates it, and gives you the capacity to do what we're now talking about, to become, I'll use the definition, <laughs> a kind, compassionate listener seeking to understand. That's truth. What's truth mean? What is this person actually saying? Is what I'm hearing true? Is that the only definition of truth? No. 
40 different people would have. I have 40 different definitions. I have other definitions of truth. I do too. I'm talking about this one. The one I see people doing all the time, listening and speaking. Now I'm going to just simply go into this is the practice of charity, compassion, kindness, with intelligence, which comes from the spiritual world, in our mind, if we are willing to practice a listening, deep listening, with no thought going on. Now this takes training, I've been told. Uh, why? Because right, many people, when they're listening to someone, are thinking about what they're going to say when the person stops talking. Now, if in another setting, that would get a huge laugh because it's so true. Many situations I've found myself in, person's talking, I'm thinking what I want to say as soon as they stop. Okay, that's ordinary listening. We're free to do it, although it's not skillful listening. If you want to be a skillful listener, you don't have to be a licensed therapist. You'll say, I'm going to put my ideas aside temporarily and wish the well-being of this person, that's good, and see if I understand what they're saying, that's true, and if you do, that's the marriage of good and truth, which occurs 4,000 and so, so many times within the Ar Arcano Celestia alone, I'm told. <laughs> they do, they can figure that out now. So that's the marriage of good and truth. We have a mind which is able to take into account, that's the so-called ratio, the other person, and otherwise we wouldn't be able to do it, which is why Swedenborg is so big on that. He said, yes, you can do it. Now I'm told, if, if I just want to say that, well, that's great. Guess what Gard said today, or guess what the lecturer said today? He said, that's what the marriage of good and truth is. Well, so what? The second step that I've learned is it takes practice. So I, if you're a therapist, you're training to do it so you don't get your own stuff mixed up with a person who's depending on you with a trust relationship to listen for their well-being. You don't bring your stuff in. You're trained to do that. If you're a friend, I'm offering, hey, let's, let's, let's find a way to practice. Now, I'm reminded, uh, I was just reminded, um, this conversation has been um, on my a sort of topic list with several people, and I'm reminded it went so far as to, on Saturday during the discussion group, we may be practicing something like this. And that's what I really want to get to in this uh, talk, is a dialogical model for talking about teachings. Because these are spiritual teachings. <clears throat> So uh, what I uh, just talked about was what came up at the very end of the lecture was the observation that what uh, the translation of a spiritually natural person is, is an empathic, sensitive, skillful listener. Because conversation is so much of what we do with one another that's helpful. It's one of the easiest ways to help someone. If I were asked what to come over with a pickup truck and uh, a brush hog to cut somebody's brush at the back end of their 40-acre farm, I'm afraid I'd have to say I don't, have a, I don't even have a pickup truck. But if the same person said, Guard, have you got five minutes? I'd kind of like to talk to you about something. 
or I could name any one of you, I'd like to talk to you for five minutes. Now that person may still need a brush hog in the back of 40 of their, but they may want to ask something about that you can help them with. It's the easiest thing we can do and it's free. It doesn't cost anything. So a skilled therapist spends years learning the same thing that we're, uh, that we're talking about. Okay, um, I wanted to mention two um, moments in history as a transition. And one was the very first moment that I'm aware of where it was one George Dole who upon uh, request of the Swedenborg Foundation in about 2003, many of you who know George, of course, we could have a moment of bliss thinking about Uncle George or George or George Dole the professor, George Dole the friend, George Dole the three-miler. Uh, many years sat on the board of the Swedenborg Foundation, so they said, George, would you mind giving us, you know, as we always do, we have someone speak to us before the board meeting, maybe 15 minutes. And for the very first time, to my knowledge, and George claims it's the very first time he did this, he took about seven paragraphs from another very short work of Emanuel Swedenborg. It's the second major work he attempted after the first work after the Arcana, so-called Secrets of Heaven. Swedenborg wrote these volumes and volumes and volumes. Then he sat down and said, I better write something short. So he wrote New Jerusalem and the Seventh-day Teaching. Paragraphs 11 through 17. George simply sat down with them. The first sentence uh, goes roughly, there is nothing more important in the universe than to know what is good and to know what is true. That's the first, that's paragraph number 11. Then he goes on to paragraph 10 and George was thinking, well, he probably should tell us what's good and what's true. He doesn't. Swedenborg doesn't. He leaves it open. So, in preparation for his talk, it dawned on George. Why don't I substitute what I believe is good and what I think of as true in a concrete situation? And he came up with good is I care about you. And true, I want to understand what you're saying to me. That's what he did, 2003. Called it a meta-translation. And guess what? The word universe, I don't know about you, but when I read the word universe, I think of Carl Sagan and billions and billions and billions of stars, and my mind goes, whoa, that's too big. Guess what? Swedenborg doesn't mean that by the word universe because he uses the same word. He just uses a shorthand here. The same word is the... Is the uh, it's the universal human race. It's human beings he's talking about. So there's nothing more important in the social realm than to understand that it is good to care about the other and oneself, and it is true to want to understand what they're actually saying instead of projecting on it or saying, well, I want to get a word in edgewise. 
Okay. So he then developed this. He, he made the meta-translation and presented it as his talk. And then subsequently, the same year, I'm going to say approximately 2003, 4 or 5, presented it as a lecture here at the Freiburg New Church Assembly. And he calls it meta-translation. And I offered an example of it because I think it's one of the historic moments in the organized new church to dare to do it and to invite others. We're all invited now into this process. So the second um, event in history to which I wanted to bring our attention that's quite relevant, and now I've been shifting around my papers enough so that I'm <laughs> See if I can find it. Oh, it's right here. <clears throat> when the Freiburg New Church Assembly was formed, I believe in 19, approximately, if not exactly, in 1921. Exactly. Was that exactly? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Prior to the building of the first building, which was approximately 1928. Exactly. <laughs> I think that was exactly. Which was the present kitchen. <laughs> The big house, I call it the big house, the main building, uh, not the Dole Wing or this lecture hall, was built in, and this is approximately 1931, and then the Dole Wing subsequently 1964, and then this wing, I'll have to rely on the knowledge of others. But in 1921, when they char made a charter, they asked themselves, what is the purpose of the Freiburg New Church Assembly? And what they came up with was the following sentence. This, the purpose of the Freiburg New Church Assembly by which we are chartered is, quote, the study and instruction of the doctrines of the Christian religion as revealed in the Lord's Word and explained in the writings of Emanuel Swedenborg. The phrase that comes to attention here is the study and instruction of the doctrines. That's what we're doing. That's what lectures are for. I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. I think probably all all for it. There's no argument there. So that's great. Question becomes, what are the doctrines? Well, yes, they are the, uh, the well, of course, the literal sense of the word, the Bible, has many doctrines, which is, which is simply teaching. The Latin word is doctrina, teaching. And we would say today in contemporary language, spiritual teaching, teaching about spiritual things in a practical way, which means literally how to live well. That's our question. How do you want to, how do, each one of us has that every single day. Many of us have had a little bit of time on the planet where we've pretty much resolved much of that, what we believe is a, a, good, a life well lived. What's a good life? That's what this is about. That's what we're here for, the study and instruction of the doctrines. So uh, in that respect, um, I've, had, I've been asking myself lately, <clears throat> well, how can we best do that? And I looked around and I said, well, I, if, if anyone were visiting the Freiburg New Church Assembly and asked to say, what do you think the best way for people to learn something new is? Uh, notice I said no. I, I kind of have that as a, like a basic given. Why not come here trying to learn something that you didn't know before? 
<laughs> There's a novel idea. I, I mean, I'm talking to myself here as well, uh, so don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, uh, I'm on this boat. And if you ask somebody to walk around the assembly for a day, and they didn't know anything, but they were very good observers, and you ask them, what do you think the best method of communication is? They would probably say two or three people talking together in a meaningful way. And they'd be, I believe, right. Think of how many times you've said to someone, you know, I'd really like to talk to you for a few minutes. Have you got a few minutes to sit down? Of course, I've, we've, we've gone over that. It's so, it's so basic. It's almost like it's so obvious we don't even see it. And what I'd like to do now in the few minutes remaining, so, is report a conversation that, uh, perfect example, I was sitting at dinner, it was Tuesday night, and I, you know, I sat down someplace, and I was kind of like, all right, I guess I'll sit here. And who was next to me was, and I have permission to use names, because this was a real conversation, it was absolutely fascinating. So there's Torgny on my right, Andy Stinson on my left, and Ian Wolfenden sitting across from me. It was just the four of us, and there I was enjoying dinner, not really particularly paying attention to what Ian and Torgny were talking about. But I gradually started to listen, and what Ian was saying in so many words is, you know, the lecture program here is great when lectures work really, really well, but they, you know, often they don't for him. Now, he's speaking for him. And this is great. And one thing he said was, you know, I'm a teacher. I do this stuff for a living. They pay me. And he said, I would never do this if I wanted to communicate something about, in his case, what it would be. It might be about uh, renewable energy. It might be about wind as a form of renewable energy on multiple scales. It, it could be about how to grow a business in that respect. But let's just talk about a universal process of communication. He said, I would never use this method that we use at the assembly. And, and by the way, I want to uh, caution you. I like this method of lecturing. I'm doing it right now. So the alternative is not to replace the lecture, but it's to say, what could we do if there were a model for communication of spiritual teaching that worked well? And if you were to ask Ian that, and it turned out if you were to ask Torgny, and he's been at this at a world-class level with, uh, happens to be an organization from another world, relig world religion, beautiful stuff. And I myself as a trained person have been parts of, so, so here's how, what Ian would say. Here's what I would do. <laughs> and here's what I do. He goes, I would stand up there for 15 minutes, okay? And I would lay out, these are the basic ideas I'm trying to convey to you within 15 minutes. Bell would ring. Then I would have the people to whom I'm speaking simply for the next 15 minutes do a dialogical process. Okay, sit next to the person you're sitting next to, face them. And I would ask them a question about the topic that I had just presented in 15 minutes. Please deal with this question. One person speaks for two or three minutes. This is what I heard Ian say. It's nice to talk about someone else. It's so easy that way. Or any one of you. Many of you have presented to other people topics of information. You know stuff. Two or three minutes, the person who's listening just listens, practices. What am I... Tr I care about this person. I want to understand what they're saying. And then has a chance to say, this is what I heard. 
What a beautiful sentence. This is what I heard you say. That's healing. If you, have, have you, uh, I'm just nod your head or just inside yourself go, have you ever heard anyone say to you, you know, this is what I heard you say. Is that right? You go, wow, that's beautiful. That's interactive. That's dialogical. And that's charity. That's a model which mirrors the actual spiritual teaching which we're attempting to convey. It's done in 15 minutes. There's a dialogical process where each person accepts the role of speaker and listener. The end of 15 minutes, and this is what was reported. I'm not making this up. It was reported that in the following 15 minutes, for a total of 45, you know, under ideal conditions, when people were then asked what came up in your conversation, and you simply reported it, what was reported at the end of the 15 minutes turned out to be what the speaker, who the so-called presenter, was trying to accomplish. And it was accomplished by the combination of enough information to get started, a dialogical engagement, followed by a reporting out. It did it much better than the speaker could have done by themselves. Okay? And, and then it was dessert. Dinner was over, and somebody came up and said, are you done? <laughs> and plates started moving off the table quite quickly. <clears throat> and that was it. That's it. And I asked Ian, may I have permission to use your name? He said, sure, go ahead. And uh, we're going to have a slight a taste of that on Saturday in the discussion period. So I'm going to wind up now um, <clears throat> and ask, um, or just to present that uh, the, the basic notion here is to be entirely consistent with Swedenborg's own ideas. This is not going away from what the teachings actually say. It is an attempt to, to define a model that might mo mirror the actual process of dialogue, which is a fundamental form of achieving the marriage of good and truth in a way that um, engages people and interests them. And I just will quote one more Wolfenden, if I may, uh, which is Emily. She gave me permission to quote this. She said, uh, there's another testimony. She said, well, that's what I do in my work. And she's getting a PhD, and we don't have to be PhDs. She's getting a PhD in special education to help teachers help kids. That's a communication question. And she said, we help the kids understand that there's science behind this. Swedenborg was empirical. He dealt with humans. The spiritual fills the natural. Okay, they're not two separate things. They are separate, by the way. One's outside, the other one's inside. Just like us. We have an outside, we have an inside. And she said, uh, what I do to help them is that the, the neural networks change in the learning process and they only change from the auditory process of gathering the information into the deeper processes of long-term memory. They only change if there is active engagement on the part of the learner. And dialogue is the most relevant active engagement that you can do in a short time in a classroom. She said, and that's how it works. I mean, that's how brains work. So she said, I completely support that, and that's what we do. 
So with that, um, I've intentionally violated every rule in the book in terms of the new method, but um, I'm a big fan of, of trying to hear something mentally before trying it actually. So um, <clears throat> with that, to listen, to understand is accomplished by a certain kind of listening, which includes what I think I heard you say was to check for understanding. It would be so refreshing to hear someone, anyone say, what I think I heard you say was, and with that, I conclude my talk and invite a dialogue. Uh, I see a hand, uh, three rows back. Um, I, I feel that some people are extremely good, compassionate, active listeners without any training. Um, they just sort of naturally are able to put themselves aside and, and really focus and hear what and understand what you're thinking. So I just wondered what you thought about that. Uh, I've met plenty of five-year-olds that are absolutely beautiful at it. They just mirror life. What do you think about it? You're the trained listener. So tell me, what, what's, what's behind the question? What would you like? What are you looking for? What, what's, I'm I, trying I to understand was, what you're saying. Yeah, I, I guess I was just thinking, you know, yeah. are these people sort of open, very yeah. open to spiritual things maybe? Or that's sort of a different place that they're in? Or is it just that... They're just, that's the way the mind works. I don't know, I'll just thought well, I'd throw that out there because well, I have found, yeah. um, no matter how much training I've been through, I've met people who right. you know, do something completely different as a profession, but they're right. the people everyone goes to to talk right. to because they really okay. understand. I'm going to just ask you to think about that, and uh, there's a number of people who would probably like to respond to it. I have my own response. <laughs> Good question. That, see, that comes from a person who's been through a lot of training. So I saw Laura first, followed by Colin. Well, in, in response to Jesse, it's like, well, what are we defining as training? You know, you can go to school and be trained, but you can also be trained just by your life experiences. And I think that has a whole lot to do with ah, Very good. The word training is what you might be getting a little bit tripped up on. I mean, one of the things that, you know, Ian's reflecting when he's saying is nonviolent communication, which is the absolutely very speak back. You know, which sometimes is a great technique. I find personally we had a, um, a conflict resolution person came in and that's all she did and we were all ready to shoot her in about 10 minutes because she wasn't helping us move forward. She was just kind of bouncing around what was being said. So anything, any technique has to be used with some kind of skill and, and real listening as far as what's going on but also a little bit of intuition of what's happening here, what's needed here. Um, so, yeah, I'd open up the word training. So, yeah, I think. Because you know, I think somebody who's had a certain life experience where there was real good role modeling or whatever, and then, you know, like the five year olds, they learned it from when they're very little. That makes a huge way. Colin, yeah. and then uh, noise, Colin. I was just going to say that I think deep listening or non judgmental 
mental listening is a natural skill that I think we all possess. Um, I just think that whether it's through life events or formal training or exposure, um, there's room to grow with that skill. You know, it's, it's just like any other natural skill that we all might have. Um, and so I think you know, just having that willingness to hone that skill and work on it um, is something that I think is really important. But I'm a firm believer, and maybe it's just me being an optimist, that, that everyone's capable uh, of, you know, everyone has that. Uh, it's just a question of whether you're exercising it or not. <coughs> See, wonderful. See, now we're beginning to open this up. We're learning about it. So I've got noise and then Susanna. I was uh, reading a book about the main Indian, and I suppose it, it's the same with other Indian tribes. And the main, particularly the main Indians, when they have a powwow, will uh, form a circle around the campfire and they will speak. And when one is done speaking, there's complete silence for two minutes, more or less, to let that man say something he might have forgotten. That's the way the Indians do it. Now maybe uh, we could learn something from that. Ooh. You say. That is more than beautiful. <laughs> silence is golden. and allows us, I almost want to be silent. Um, I'll just comment on that before. Uh, there's a very wise person, I'm not going to come up with his name at the moment, um, who said, why are you, who was asked, why are you so quiet? He said, well, I only speak if I can improve upon the silence. <laughs> Thank you. Susanna. Well, I just want to lift up when we're talking about <coughs> developing this deep listening, it's an opportunity, I mean, in the social interaction, you're doing out of love and charity for the other, but it's also an opportunity to go within for your own spiritual growth. Because when you see the ways in which you're not listening, when you see the blockages that you have to accepting someone else's offering, um, it's that struggle with the ego of, of, you know, well, I have something to say. I, oh, I have an experience. And, and I know we've all known people that whenever you bring anything up, they have something that, oh yes, that reminds me of this. And they jump right in. And that's the ego running away with the person. And if we can be reflective about when that happens with ourselves, I think that's the, the piece where we are, when we are loving one another by doing this kind of listening, we're also growing in ourselves in our ability to get the ego out of the driver's seat. I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow noise, and then observe Torgny. Uh, so follow noise. Uh, listen for just 15 seconds of silence to what was just said, basically. Hmm. Beautiful. That's wonderful. Thank you. I think we, I, we all have that experience. Torgny. Do me a favor Speak up a little bit. Could you do me a favor and quickly summarize how what the words were that you that you've been talking about from Swedenborg's teachings that get us here? Could you just go over that okay. like the rational okay. the Okay. 
Uh, well, very briefly, um, students of Swedenborg have been presented with what are called large abstract words and categories. Celestial, spiritual, and natural are the three biggest ones. And within the human realm, it's uh, the internal and the external. And the rational is halfway in between. Okay, so there's the first thing. We have an internal mind, which is largely unconscious, and an external mind, which is, which is situated here. It's five senses, hearing and sight largely, feeling and balance kinesthetically, others not so much. Now we mediate between the internal, where all our ideas, thoughts, and forms of knowledge and meaning really are the, come in from within, the potential from that, but they are, can only operate in a certain context which is uh, said according to the conditions established by the five senses, which is a kind of like a bowl. I mean, there's a horizon. There's a, you know, you see a background. Well, that's the extent of your horizon right now. We all know there's a tree behind the building, but we don't see it. You don't have to see it. You just see this and you listen to this. So that's the outside and the inside. The rational is that which takes into account that which is coming from within. Uh, excuse me, from without. So your question, that came from without. I have to formulate it a little bit. So the ra rational is that which takes into account the conditions in which you find yourself, and in particular, the conditions of the other person. And in order to understand those conditions, you have to, we do what Susanna said, you set yourself aside temporarily, say, what are you saying? The ability to do that is the rational, the ratio. And I would call it the, the wise mind, or the compassionate mind, or the interpersonal mind, the sensitive mind. That's the best I can do. I want to take in one more, and I, uh, uh, Trevor's going to tell us we're up to time in about a minute. Yeah. This is real quick. Um, Ian wants you to know that he, Kendall, and Emily are watching this from the car. And <laughs> would I be willing to say to the group that Gard gave him too much credit? It was primarily toward him his ideas that he presented. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, I'm busted. <laughs> Did you really hear that? Tell him I'm busted. Um, actually, uh, okay, uh, ac okay, acknowledged, uh, but thank you, Ian, you participated and gave, gave a lot of, enough credit to Torgny so that I felt confident in saying you would uh, do the same thing or something like it. I think he did say he does something like it. All right, we are out of time, so I want to thank you for your attention. <laughs> well, that's pretty intense. Oh my goodness gracious sakes.